All right, so let me introduce our speaker. Michael Haddam is the Associate Director of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute. He received his PhD in history from Yale University and his BA in history from City College. He has taught at Knox College and the New School in New York City. So I am now going to turn things over to Michael. Thank you, Sarah. I'd like to be, uh, begin by thanking Sarah and Allie and everyone at Francis Tavern who worked so hard to make the revolutionary era come alive, especially in New York City, uh, and to everyone joining us. Uh, it's sort of a long-held commonplace that Americans have traditionally been less interested in their past than in their present and their future. And one of the ways that we often see this uh, supposed disinterest is in the somewhat depressing annual reports that always seem to show that an overwhelming majority of Americans think that knowing our history is important, but they also show how little Americans actually know about that history. And a number of historians have actually argued that this disregard for the past was really a product of the revolutionary era and of Americans feeling like they had liberated themselves from the past by the revolution. Uh, but my book, Past and Prologue, uncovers a sort of unprecedented explosion of uh, what I call historical cultural production. That's you know cultural production that uses history in its content or in its themes uh, and that that goes well beyond just typical historical works or, or what I call histories of. And so to try to understand how Americans at the time thought about and understood the past, I went looking for any and all representations uh, and uses of the past, including in uh, political writings, in cultural productions like poetry, fiction, uh, art, children's textbooks, um, almanacs, and what I found was that the historical past really pervaded uh, the politics and culture of the revolutionary era in, in ways that historians are really yet to fully recognize or reckon with. And so the central question behind the book as a whole is that of national identity and the American Revolution. And that is, how did colonists go from thinking of themselves as British subjects to thinking of themselves as American citizens. And before 1760, most British colonists thought of the British past as their history. Uh, but by 1800, that's really no longer the case. And to me, that's a really significant transformation. So how does a society uh, go about discarding a previously shared past and create a new one to replace it? And how do they do that amidst the upheaval and instability of revolution? And so my book sort of tells the story of this transformation uh, through three processes. Uh, the first is how colonists began reconsidering their relationship to the British past, uh, how they created a newly shared colonial past for the first time, and how after the war they created uh, a sense of what I call a deep national past or a sort of American antiquity, you might say. And so fundamentally, uh, Past and Prologue argues that these changing historical memories are really necessary to better understand both the coming of the revolution and uh, the origins of American national identity. So I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about the book's origins. Um, 
It began as my dissertation as a grad student and was originally intended to explore uh, British historical memory in the colonies up to about 1776. But while I was doing research at the New York Historical Society, I found a manuscript and I'm gonna show it to you here. Uh, you can see on the cover page, it reads a history of American Revolution. And if you can see below that, there's a notation that says found among the papers of Governor William Livingston, who was the uh, revolutionary governor of New Jersey. And I'd worked on Livingston before, and I knew that he hadn't written a history of the revolution. So I started trying to figure out just what this was. And what it was, was about 550 manuscript pages that look like this. And after transcribing most of it and analyzing the text and the handwriting, I discovered that it was an early draft manuscript of the first six chapters of David Ramsey's History of the American Revolution, which was the most popular uh, historical work of the early Republic. And after identifying it, I compared this early draft with the final published version, which came out about uh, five years later in uh, 1790. And what I found was that the biggest change was really in the first chapter. Uh, in the draft, it spent a lot of time sort of recounting the history of Britain in the 17th century. But in the published version, uh, most of that was cut out and it was replaced with uh, sort of expanded individual histories of the various colonies and, and their settlement and their development. And it was really finding that manuscript and the changes in it that convinced me to uh, enlarge the scope of my project to include the early national period uh, and to focus on the broader process that was exemplified by these changes uh, and the question that it raised, which was, uh, when and how did Americans stop thinking of the British past as their history and create American history to replace it? Uh, so I'm going to start by talking about a few key facts um, uh, regarding uh, what I call history culture in the 18th century. Uh, and the, the first of those has to do with historical distance. And that's basically... Uh, it means how far a moment in the past seems to you in the present, right? Uh, colonial history culture was defined in part by the fact that uh, historical distance in the 18th century was quite truncated. So even the, the distant past retained an immediacy and a contemporary resonance uh, because the past doesn't seem, uh, didn't seem as, as far away from the present. Um, even though the colonies are undergoing really rapid economic and social changes, for the vast majority of uh, colonists who are engaged in uh, rural agriculture, and that's about 98% of the population, uh, the basic rhythms of their daily lives were not all that different from those of their ancestors of hundreds of years past. And so, so given that, uh, the past really did not seem as far away uh, from them as we might assume. I mean, we live in a sort of contemporary society in which um, technological and other developments have sort of inflated our sense of historical distance. Um, 
where uh, photographs from a few decades ago seem to be from another world. But for many people in the 18th century, this shortened sense of historical distance really contributed to a more uh, intimate relationship between the past and present and a more intensely historicized present. And I hope to give you a sense of what I mean by that. Um, another key fact to understand was that Americans, uh, colonists in the 18th century had a, had a real cultural reverence for the authority of the past. And this is partly because they lived in a common law culture, which gave uh, legal weight to custom and precedent and tradition. And in a culture like that, there's a tendency to be bestow legitimacy on something um, because it had existed for a significant period of time. And this reverence for the authority of the past manifested itself in uh, two key ways for understanding history culture's role uh, in the coming of the revolution and then later uh, in, in the early national period. Uh, so first, it applies directly to colonists' relationship with Britain, which they understood as having been legally defined by the sort of laissez-faire custom of the previous half century. Uh, but more broadly, it offered colonists before the revolution a, a sense of security and stability because it allowed them to develop expectations about the present uh, based on the past, right? Uh, the, basically the custom and the precedent of the colony's relationship with the mother country allowed them to feel secure in their expectations that that relationship wouldn't suddenly change. Um, but of course, when parliament begins to undertake their program of imperial reforms in the 1760s, that relationship did suddenly change. And parliament was seen as usurping the authority of the past uh, through their unprecedented legislation. And this really caused colonists no small amount of anxiety and instability because they could no longer anticipate what would happen next. Um, John Adams sort of expressed this anxiety and the logic behind it when he sort of incredulously asked during the Stamp Act crisis, are we not to prophesy the future by the experience of the past? Um, that just seems like common sense to him as an 18th century colonist. And I think for many Americans today, you know, they need only look back to the last four years to understand uh, the anxiety that uh, can be produced by sort of unprecedented behavior by the government or its leaders, um, both for individuals and communities. And so parliament's behavior in the 1760s um, uh, had this type of cultural impact, I believe, on many colonists. Um, another type of this cultural impact that parliament's actions had uh, was that if it sort of forced colonists to begin to think about the British past differently. Uh, if we think about the glorious revolution of 1688 in England, it sort of ended the tyranny of the, the Stuart monarchs and established a constitutional monarchy, right, with a significant expansion of the powers of parliament. And by limiting the king's power and enlarging that of parliaments, uh, as well as creating the board of trade and the national debt, and the expansion of the British Navy, uh, the Glorious Revolution really laid the foundation for the British Empire's success in the 18th century. And for that reason, it played a, a real fundamental role 
in most Britain's civic identity. Uh, and that's, that means back in Britain and in the colonies. And in that sense, it's really not unlike, say, how many Americans have long related to the American Revolution, right? Seeing the principles that it established as the foundation on which the nation was built and from which it should always proceed. But when Parliament begins to pass all kinds of unprecedented legislation and colonists uh, realize that they have no one else to appeal to, they start to see the Glorious Revolution differently. Uh, their experiences in the 1760s and the 1770s really called into question the meaning of an event that had been uh, so fundamental uh, to their identity as subjects of the most successful empire in the world. And they came to see the Glorious Revolution not as having achieved uh, you know, some ideal balance between king and parliament, but instead as having simply reversed their roles by creating the circumstances in which a parliament uh, could act as arbitrarily and tyrannically as any 17th century monarch. And this development in the 1760s sort of also has some contemporary resonance um, in that many Americans today are broadly reconsidering the meaning of the American Revolution uh, and the usefulness of its legacy in our political culture. Uh, another key aspect, I think, of the authority of the past in, in the 18th century was the importance of what was called first principles. And this is an idea that sort of colonists had inherited from 17th century Britain. And they had a very uh, cyclical understanding of history, right? We think of history today as something that that's linear and that's progressive, um, but that's not how they understood uh, the past in the 18th century. Instead, they, they thought about it in this cyclical way in which uh, societies inevitably rose and fell according in part to their virtue. Um, and so how does a society at least temporarily stave off its inevitable decline by returning to its first principles, right? And this is an idea that still retains, I think, significant uh, power in our political culture today in the United States. If you think about um, legal originalism or um, you know, movements like the Tea Party. Um, those are expressions of this long-standing sort of uh, Anglophone tradition of first principles. And in the 18th century for colonists and for many Britons, uh, first, princi first principles meant uh, the English constitution and the ideals of the glorious revolution, right? But during the imperial crisis and then later after the war, as Parliament's actions called those principles into question, uh, colonists began looking for new first principles in their own colonial past. Um, and I think uh, one other thing that we need to understand is that before the revolution, there's really no sense of a shared American past of say a, a colonial history that incorporated all, the, uh, all of the colonies. And, while historians have long assumed that the idea of American history came about after the revolution, my book actually argues that it was a driving force behind the revolution, beginning during the imperial crisis in the 1760s and 1770s, um, and then continuing uh, in the decades after the war. And so the first half of my book shows how, because of the crisis, American colonists began reconsidering their relationship to the British past 
and how they also began to construct a sort of sense of a, a shared colonial past for the very first time. But it's really after the war that a coherent narrative begins to take shape. And so I wanna, I wanna talk about that narrative and some of its themes and maybe say something as well about who was included and uh, or not included and why. Uh, so if, if we're thinking about the forging of a national history in the period after the Revolutionary War uh, and the colonial past's role in it, it's really important to keep in mind that unlike many European nations, the new United States had the unique situation um, which sort of was followed by later post-colonial South American nations of having had their historical origins in the form of their colonial past documented, right? Rather than lost to time. Um, but that provided a real unique challenge. So how do you incorporate a dependent colonial past into the national history of an independent republic? And in the early national period, cultural nationalist uh, writers of all genres really contributed to the broad projects of fostering a national identity and cultural independence from Britain to go along with their political independence. And the creation of a new national history was a real fundamental part of those projects. That new national history would begin with the American or colonial past rather than the British past. And that is the broader change that we saw in the, the Ramsey manuscript that I showed earlier. Now, nationalist writers and artists and, and others uh, did this by basically reimagining their shared colonial past and arguing that the colonies had always been effectively independent from Britain uh, and that they'd always been united. So for example, in his History of the American Revolution, which is published in 1790, David Ramsey claimed that uh, the inhabitants of the colonies from the beginning enjoyed a government that was little short of being independent. Uh, he wrote that they had advanced nearly to the magnitude of a nation and that a sameness of circumstances and occupations created a great sense of equality that disposed them to union in any common cause. So you can see these themes of, of unity and independence. And not only were the, the colonies characterized as having been independent from Britain and united, uh, Ramsey goes a few steps further by basically turning the first settlers of the colonies into uh, proper patriots. Um, so there's a very famous uh, um, a quote from Ramsey's history where he says that the political creed of an American colonist was short but substantial. He believed that God made all mankind originally equal and that he endowed them with the rights of life, property, and as much liberty as was consistent with the rights of others. Uh, and that these colonists then grew up from their earliest inf infancy with uh, that confidence, which is well calculated to inspire a love for liberty and a prepossession in favor of independence. Now he's talking about the original Puritan settlers of Massachusetts. And if you know, you know, if you know a, a bit about the history of Puritan Massachusetts, you, that probably does not sound very accurate to you. Um, but of course, when it comes to historical memories, um, histor historical accuracy is not really a factor in how successful or useful a historical memory is. 
And so Ramsey's basically turning the first settlers uh, into proto-signers of the Declaration of Independence here. And asserting uh, historical independence from Britain was a key way in which these cultural nationalists tried to foster a sense of cultural independence from Britain after the war. Um, the idea was sort of, was that uh, we were never really under British authority. We never really had any affection for Britain and we were always united. And again, despite none of these things being historically accurate, um, for someone at the time taking those ideas together, it was meant to imply to Americans that they had in fact never really been British, right? And we can see that in uh, this um, primary source that I wanna share with you here. Um, this is David Ramsey's um, map historical and biographical chart. Uh, this is from 1810. I first saw this when I was doing research at the American Philosophical Society. Um, and, and it's huge. It took up the, the space of, of an entire large table. And you can see in the historical chart that many of the, uh, that many of the original uh, colonies enjoyed what he called, and you can see this in the inset here, uh, what he called free government. You can see the green represents free government. And you can see that it lasts up until about uh, 1688. Right, right at the time of the Glorious Revolution, uh, which uh, effectively uh, took the colonies' independence away from them, and this goes back to that idea that I was talking about about Americans thinking, uh, uh, rethinking of the Glorious Revolution during the 1760s and coming to see it as basically allowing Parliament to exercise arbitrary power over the colonies and creating the situation that led to. The declaring of independence. And so the narrative that Ramsey's map is telling is that the revolution was about regaining something that had been lost, right? Not so much about creating something entirely new. And if we think about it, that's a very conservative interpretation of the revolution. And uh, we can get a sense here of how these interpretations of the colonial past were also interrelated uh, with the politics of the period, cultural nationalists use these types of historical cultural productions and the interpretations in them to buttress the authority of the new and tenuous uh, federal government. So, um, if we think about what's happening in the 1780s, uh, incidents like Shays' Rebellion, where the participants adopted revolutionary rhetoric in their rebellions against the new state government, um, really highlighted the need for cultural nationalists to make the past um, less co-optable by the discontented, right? And so this historical memory of the colonial past and, and what it means for the revolution really uh, sought to achieve that goal by stressing continuities between the past and the present, and thereby minimizing the sense of historical change that was wrought by the revolution, right? In, in, in this map, you can get a sense of, of the interpretations that were popular, um, which, is, which sees a much more fundamental break happening in 1688 than in 1776 in some sense. Um, and cultural nationalists in their historical works and in their historical cultural productions and other genres um, really argued that 
the revolution was fought to preserve colonist independence. And they also argued that they'd never had any genuine affection for Britain. And they argued that Americans' earliest colonial forebears had shared the principles that defined resistance to imperial reform and ultimately the revolution. Uh, and if all those things are the case, then the revolution appears to have been the product of systemic long-term issues, right? Rather than some sudden spontaneous popular reaction. And by creating a narrative in which the colonial past looked like the 1780s and the 1790s, these writers made it so that independence represented continuity rather than rupture. And by doing that, they effectively de-radicalized the revolution at a time when cultural nationalists were really trying to rein in the popular spirit unleashed by the revolution and to prevent it from sort of uh, sowing further discord, especially in the years around uh, the constitution. Um, part of establishing cultural independence from Britain meant creating a national history that, at, that in some ways could transcend the history of Britain and the British empire. Right? This is how Columbus becomes the discoverer of America, thanks to the efforts of a number of these uh, cultural nationalists who took advantage of the 300th anniversary in 1792 to basically make him that. Uh, and that's because he provided a non-British origin story for the new nation, even though he never set foot on the North American continent. Now, another way they sought to create a history that transcended the history of Britain was through a growing interest in the natural history of the land itself. So famously in the 1760s, the Comte de Buffon, who was a French naturalist, a scientist, had described both the landscape of North America and its animal inhabitants as degenerated compared to their European counterparts. And the land and the climate of North America, he argued, produced smaller and weaker animals. And subsequent European writers sort of extended that argument to include Native Americans, and then by extension, American colonists. Um, and so American intellectuals in the 1780s and 1790s uh, really sought desperately to refute this degeneracy theory. Um, and many state histories devoted long sections, and in some cases, entire volumes to describing the land of those colonies uh, and states and referring to these European writers by name when they did so. And that impulse gave rise to the nation's first natural history museums, uh, including the Peel Museum uh, in Philadelphia in the 1780s. And Charles Wilson Peel was a painter who had made a living painting elites before the war, but he had become interested in natural history by the 1780s. And those interests collided in his museum uh, for these nationalist purposes. So th this is an image of the museum Here you can see this is a painting by his son of what was called the long room. And you can see specimens of species that are indigenous to North America uh, in the cases along the walls. Um, but if, you, if we look along the top of the walls, you can see these large portraits that were hung by uh, Peel uh, of prominent figures from the War for Independence. And most historians have assumed that this display was sort of inspired by the Enlightenment and the idea that man was on top because of the because uh, that's where they stood in the natural world. But if we look again and understand Peel's museum as part of this broader history culture of the earlier Republic and these goals of, of forging a national identity, 
we can see that what he also did was he created for his visitors a visual manifestation of the connection between the natural history of the continent and the history of the new nation, right? In the museum's catalog, uh, Peel wrote of the tendency which a knowledge of natural history has to promote national happiness. And for visitors to the museum, the prominent placement of these revolutionary portraits and busts within the museum provided an immediate and meaningful visual connection uh, between the revolutionary past and, uh, the, and the history of the land. And in effect, he's basically nationalizing uh, natural history. And a few years later, um, uh, he would find what all the cultural nationalists had been looking for, which was an animal bigger than any in Europe that uh, would irrefutably refute once and for all the uh, degeneracy theory. And this is um, Peel's painting of when uh, parts of a mastodon or, or mammoth were found in upstate New York and Peel bought the rights to the site from the owner of the land, John Mastin. He offered him $200, but Mastin proposed a counter offer, which was $200 plus a rifle for his son and an expensive gown from New York City for each of his daughters. Uh, Peel agreed and he continued digging until he uncovered uh, an, an entire skeleton, which went on display in his museum in Philadelphia was a huge sensation um, in the United States, uh, a, a huge cultural event for the new nation. Uh, this, this also extended this interest in natural history to the indigenous inhabitants of the colonies, of the, of the, the in the colonial past, I should say. Um, one French natural history writer noted in 1804 that Americans make it their favorite business to combat European writers, and they act as if they were advocates and avengers of their predecessors, the Indians. That's the quote. And we can see this interest in many histories, uh, state and general histories, that provided really detailed portraits of Native Americans um, in great detail. And in his history of New Hampshire, Jeremy Belknap actually wrote, however fond we may have been of accusing the Indians of treachery and infidelity, it must be confessed that the first example was first set them by the Europeans. Had we always treated them with justice and humanity, we might have lived in as much harmony with them as with any other people on the globe. And often these writers made analogies between the sort of abstract contact era Native Americans and the white Americans of the 1780s and 1790s. Uh, so when the historian of, of Vermont, Samuel Williams wrote of the tendency and effect of a certain government being equality, freedom and independence, he was actually speaking of the government uh, of indigenous governments. Uh, and in a talk given at the New York Historical Society in the early 19th century, Governor Morris uh, said that uh, we grow out of the same ground with our Indian predecessors. Have we not some traits to mark our common origin? Uh, let us see then whether some other characteristic of the Indians may not open us up to a view of ourselves and the perspective of our country, unquote. So this practice of linking history and geography to nationalize the land itself really formed the foundation for a perspective on American history that was voiced by Daniel Webster in 1825 when he said that the principle of free governments adheres to the American soil, right? So just as these nationalists projected their present onto their own colonial past, they also projected their present onto the past of indigenous peoples. 
And national writers uh, in this period really constructed their own history for Native Americans because it proved useful in their cultural project of fostering um, a new national identity. While at the same time, efforts had already begun by the federal government and the states to displace Native Americans from their indigenous lands, right? So I'd like to close um, by saying a few things about uh, what I hope that uh, readers will take away from my, uh, from my book, from Past and Prologue. So one of the things that I hope that readers will uh, get out of the book is that, um, you know, we've tended to have these um, uh, various interpretations of the coming of the American Revolution, whether it's economic or constitutional. Um, but in this book, I really tried to offer uh, one possible aspect of what might be considered the cultural origins and causes of the revolution. And I think that there's a lot more work to be done in that regard. I've tried to recover some part of the complex role of the past in our nation's founding. And I hope that that sheds some light on its role in our current society, right? Um, and I show in the book that after the war, when Americans found themselves with a new nation whose history only went back a few years uh, to 1776, they created a shared past for themselves. And that's what we call American history. Um, many Americans continue to think about American history on the foundation and the terms that were set by this revolutionary generation. And that's why it's, it's still, it's significant to us today. And I hope that all readers will come away from the book with a better appreciation of how history shapes the present uh, and vice versa and how that worked during the revolution. And I hope they'll come away more equipped to be aware of when specific narratives of the past are being used and to ask why and for whom. And then finally, when a reader hears people complaining that history is being politicized by some person or group, they should know that American history has always been political in the United States. It can't not be political. Um, that's not a, a bug, it's a feature of American history. Um, and I really hope that readers will come away understanding that American history, quote unquote, uh, is not a neutral uh, objective term, but instead represents something that was originally constructed and that revising how we think about the past and our own history is really an American tradition that played a crucial role in the founding of the nation. Uh, so I'd like to thank uh, Francis Tavern again for hosting this talk and I'm uh, very happy to take any questions. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, again, if you have any questions, type them into the chat box. Now I'm going to turn it over to Allie, who's going to get us started. All right. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for being here. Uh, my first question is, uh, what first got you interested in writing that dissertation that turned into a book? Yeah, so it was, um, I mean, obviously it was a requirement of, of, uh, to, to, to graduate and to receive my PhD, but it, the topic itself, um, it, it actually, the germ of it started when I was working on an undergraduate paper in, at City College. Um, I was working on the, the founding of King's College in New York City and the debates surrounding that. Um, and I noticed that both of the sides in that debate 
were uh, would routinely use sort of terms that came from 17th century British history, um, like leveler or, or Cromwell or Republican, you know, and I it, it sort of struck me, and I I mentioned it in the paper, but it sort of stayed in the back of my mind, so that when I was ready to look for a topic, you know, for my dissertation, it was sort of still there. And, and so I started to dig some more into it beyond just that, that initial context. Okay, yeah, it's a very interesting topic. Um, I find it interesting anyway. Um, speaking of interesting things, what is the most interesting thing you found while you were doing your research? So, I mean, for, in, in many ways for me, uh, I, I, I think I, I showed that I, the two sources that for me are really that were the, the biggest sort of finds. So the one is that manuscript of Ramsey's uh, that I showed early on. That I found at the New York Historical Society and it was unidentified at the time. It was in the John Jay papers and it was only identified in the papers by the writing, by the title on, the, on that title page. Um, and uh, so uh, it was exciting to find this document that nobody had identified before and to be able to identify it um, for the first time. Uh, so that was, that was a super exciting uh, find. And then also the, the, the map, the, the map is a really interesting thing. Ramsey created it to, because I found this out when I uh, later did some research into his, his correspondence. Um, he created those with the idea of selling them to schools. Um, and you can see that the example that I showed was colored in. Um, you had to pay extra if you wanted the colored version. Um, I've only seen one other copy of it and it's held at the New York Public Library and it's not colored. Um, and what I found out partly through, through his correspondence was that he had his teenage daughters do the coloring of those, of those maps. Uh, so those two sources were really the most exciting finds for me during the process. Okay, great. Um, so going into some of the points that you've raised kind of towards the beginning of your presentation, uh, what are some of the customs that were brought to the colonies from Great Britain? Some of the things that kind of stuck around for a while. Yeah, so I mean, what I found, so for a long time, historians have, have argued or, and or assumed um, that the colonists were becoming more British over the course of the 18th century, right? Um, and that may have been true in some, in, in, in some ways, but what I found, at least in the context of history culture specifically, is that there were, colonists brought a number of um, cultural ideas or practices with them from England in the 17th century that they held onto into the 18th century, while at the same time in the 18th century, those things kind of died away in Britain. Um, the authority of the past is one of those. Uh, this is why, you know, when colonists tell, uh, say, say to parliament and to Britons, you can't tax us because you've never taxed us before. Um, Britons think, you know, that makes no sense, right? I mean, we just won this war. We have this new huge empire. If it takes new laws to you know, manage that, then that would make sense, right? But from, from the cultural lens of, of the colonist history culture, um, you know, that does not make sense, right? Um, another one of those things is uh, sort of the 
cultural practices is um, Pope's Day, right? This is this is mostly practiced in in New England, most famously in Boston, but it's a celebration of uh, it's sometimes called Guy Fawkes Day, right? Uh, which is uh, a celebration of the the foiling of the the plot by the, this Catholic Guy Fawkes um, in the early 17th century to, to blow up, literally blow up Parliament, right? Um, uh, colonists sort of, at least in New England, held on to that cultural practice and it became highly politicized within the context of colonial politics. But at the same time, it sort of dies off in England, at least, or, or at least for Pope's Day, that sort of changes a lot um, from the way that the colonists used it. So, uh, this is what I mean when I talk about a cultural interpretation of the revolution, the cultural or cultural origins of the revolution. There are these uh, these cultural ways in which colonists start to diverge from Britain that really start to become obvious to them during the 1760s when Parliament starts to 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 basically change its approach to administering the colonies and. Um, I really think that you know these cultural breaks that happen are a, are part of the explanation for how colonists went from being proud subjects, you know, in 1763 to declaring independence just 13 years later, right? Uh, so that's really the challenge for anyone working on the coming of the revolution is to explain that. How does that happen in only 13 years? And I really think that these cultural breaks are a sort of necessary precursor to the political break of independence. That's a great question. Yeah, that, uh, that makes perfect sense. Um, next I have, can you elaborate on what you mean by imperial crisis? Yeah, so I, I probably should have done this early, uh, when I first mentioned it, but uh, when, I, when I say the imperial crisis, I'm referring to the period uh, roughly between 1763 and 1776, right? Um, the, the, the Seven Years' War ends, Britain comes out of it successful, it now has a much enlarged, expanded empire, and it really has to um, uh, figure out how it's gonna administer this much larger empire. Uh, and with the new king, uh, George III, who, who um, comes to power just a few years earlier, there's a real shift in, um, in imperial governance and the approach to governing the colonies um, than from the previous decades, where it had been basically a, a sort of hands-off approach. Um, the new king and his uh, ministers really wanted to take a more sort of direct and a more active um, and a more centralizing approach to administering the colonies. And so they set out on um, a sort of program of imperial reforms. And you know, that begins with the famous Proclamation Act in 1763, um, uh, the Sugar Act, um, the, then the, of course the famous Stamp Act in 65, the, uh, the Townsend Acts in 1767, um, if we think about the uh, uh, the, the Tea Act in 1773, you know, all of those are part of Britain trying to figure out, you know, what it can get away with in extending its grip on the colonies and the colonies responding by, um, uh, by rejecting those overtures. And, and that's the imperial crisis is Britain's desire to, you know, more centralized administration of the colonies at the same time while the, while the colonists basically want things to see this, at least to stay the same, 
right? And, and to, for Britain to basically remain hands off and for both of them to just benefit by their sort of mutually beneficial uh, commerce effectively. So that, that's, that, that's the crisis, right? And that's the crisis in a nutshell. Okay, great. Um, were there any lingering feelings of unity towards Britain after the revolution? Yeah, so of course, you know, it's not like colonists, uh, it's not like um, colonists woke up on July 5th, 1776, and they were American, right? Um, it's not even the, you know, it's not even the case that, you know, say the, the day after the peace treaty was signed in 1783, that now colonists are American. There's a process, uh, there's multiple processes that have to happen for that to be the case, right? In, in the one hand, on the one hand, uh, colonists have to, uh, what one historian has called uh, sort of unbecome being British, right? Uh, to stop being British. And that's a separate process from becoming American, right? And I, you know, I, I hope I, I've given you somewhat a, a sense of how I try to address this in the book and the ways that they used history and changing historical memories and narratives of the past uh, to do both of those things, right? To, to sort of create a sense of, of historical and cultural independence from Britain. And once you've done that, then you can actually start to craft a new national identity, right? But of course, I mean, it, I, I should say, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be taking as, as implying that they, were, um, that they were entirely successful in doing that, right? Um, I mean, after all, you only have to look at the Civil War to see that that, would, that, that did not uh, fully work. So it's not so much, for me, it's not so much the, a, a question of success or failure, you know, but it's, it's the first steps in a, in a long process of trying to define our national identity as Americans that continues right down to the present, right? Every generation has to redefine what it means to be American. And one of the ways that we do that is by uh, is through how we think of the American Revolution, right, and or our colonial past, um, and so it's significant because it's the it sets off this process that all Americans, all generations of Americans since, including ourselves, have been engaged in that process. Okay. Thank you. This is my last question. It's very important. If you could dine with anybody at Francis Tavern, who would you want to dine with? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think if you, I think if you had one, I think if you had one chance, um, it, it'd probably be foolish not to pick George Washington, <laughs> I think. But at the same time, I mean, there are probably more interesting characters that you would, that you could have a dinner with. Um, I suspect that probably Henry, Henry Knox would be a much more interesting dinner companion um, than uh, than George Washington was. But you know, Washington is is such a central figure, and I, I talk about it a little bit in the book about how his death. Um, it, how he's remembered after after his death in the late seventeen uh, nineties, and you know he he that sort of enshrining of Washington um, is is the beginning of part of you know if we think about how we remember the revolution today one one of the things that's uh, uh, 
one of the things that's so popular about the revolution are these founder biographies, right? Um, there's every year there's dozens and dozens of them published, and and every and every year people buy those, right? People are interested in these leaders of the revolution as as individuals, right? Uh, and it's really the the first biographies that are written of Washington after he died in the early 19th century, um, most famously by uh, uh, Mason Weems, which is where the cherry tree story comes from, and I can't tell why uh, Weems just made those things up, but. Uh, you know, that's really the beginning of how we still, how many Americans still relate to the revolution on a sort of individual, right, on a, or a sort of individual level. Um, and, and you know, that there are, there have at times been pushbacks against that, you know, uh, about relating to the revolution in that way, but it's, Washington is significant for that reason. And him more than any other, maybe because he was the first to be sort of lionized in this way. Um, but you know, it's had the effect of, uh, of in some ways making them more distant from us, right? Than, than bringing them closer. I mean, Washington, in some ways he doesn't even seem like a real person, right? I mean, on the, if you look at him on the dollar bill, you know, it's hard. It's hard to remember that he was just, he was a regular person. You know, he was a person that lived and existed, and um, and so you know there are pros and cons to the way that our memory of the revolution has developed over time. And I, I I mention this because this is the project that I'm working on now, my next book project, which is about uh, the history of the memory of the revolution, how we have remembered the revolution basically since the uh, since the early 19th century up until the present. And the conflicts that are embedded in that, you know, if we think about the in just in the recent past, the 1619 project and the 1776 commission, right? Uh, we're we're still fighting about the meaning of the revolution, right? The meaning of it, its legacy, who who gets to own that legacy, who gets to be a part of that legacy, right? And so the project that I'm working on now is basically uh, looking at those types of debates throughout our national history. So it's a really interesting question. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, um, thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you, Ali, for moderating. Thank you, everyone who has attended and submitted questions. Uh, it was super interesting. If you want to learn more, the book is Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution, available where books are sold. Uh, check it out. It's a super fascinating topic. I was really glad that you're able to join us. Um, thank you for joining us, um, all of you at home. Thank you to those of you who have donated. If you are interested in making a donation and helping us continue our mission of sharing the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public, you can visit our website, francistavernmuseum.org. You can make a donation. You can also join our mailing list to stay up to date with all of our programs. Our next evening lecture is on April 22nd, and we're going to be diving into the uh, battle of Battles Up in Lake Champlain. The book is Valcor uh, by Jack Kelly. So you can put that on your calendars. Tickets are available now. We have a whole great slate of spring and summer events on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. You can check those out. But until next time, uh, have a wonderful evening and hopefully we will see you all again soon. Thank you, everyone.